you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Do we have a slide up there this morning, Jeffrey? You'll need to resync the computer then. John chapter 1. Ronnie Frankie was sharing with me last week after service that in John chapter 1 alone, there are 20 different attributes of God mentioned. So I only have 20 points to go over with you this morning. I'm just kidding. <laughs> They'd be packing Ronnie off if, if, I, if I preached through 20 points. <laughs> um, John chapter 1, the, the, the one verse that we're going to deal with, y'all, uh, it's just, it's so fantastic and glorious that it, at several times throughout the week, I just found myself just contemplating on the magnitude of what is written in this one verse that is glossed over. And the reality, see, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I think that... Um, John 3.16 is the most quoted verse, tells us something of how much we misunderstand the Word of God, because these first three verses, I, they should be plastered everywhere. They just should. Uh, it is the grand assertion that John is trying to get us to understand, and uh, John 3.16 is, is merely, and I don't want to downplay all of the Word of God is important, but is, a, uh, is, is pointing back, I think, even in this direction. Um, so let's begin this morning uh, with John 16, verses 13 through 15. Hear Jesus speaking. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He, for he will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has given it has his mind. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, what we learn in these verses, not only that the Spirit is going to come and give a fuller revelation through the apostles, but also, I, I read this this morning to give us the reminder that here Jesus speaks of the work of the Spirit of God illuminating the truth of God to the people of God. And that drives home this one point that I, I want to make clear as we begin our time this Mother's Day morning, and that is we come completely dependent upon the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. How dare we ever come to the Word of God and think that we inherit our understanding of these words from our denominational background or from some other heritage or some other means. We come this morning understanding the Word of God only by the graciousness of of the Spirit of Almighty God. So with that in mind, would you stand this morning? And let's read together these first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to, about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before Your throne this morning begging that You would illuminate these words, especially of verse 3. Inscribe them on our hearts. Help us to understand the weight of what You are saying through John. And might we worship You in spirit and in truth because of that illuminating power in our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we learned last week that John is not an apostle that minces words. John doesn't come building small assertions and then bigger assertions and bigger assertions. He comes and he makes one bold assertion. John begins here with deep theology. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He here grounds the identity of Christ prior to creation. This is the beginning prior to the beginning of Genesis chapter 1's beginning. What John is doing here is he's getting to the central truth of the gospel. The central truth of the point that he wants all of us to understand and to know. What John is pointing at is that Jesus is the Son of God who will bear the sins of those who the Father has given to Him. He is declaring who Jesus is. And we we spoke last week of the fact that here we find the, the passage that greatly refutes the Arian heresy. Arius again... For those of you who might not have been with us, wanted to defend the Father as in, in, in a primacy in the Godhead. And so Arius followed his own logic and taught that there was a time that Christ was not. Arius catechized the children in his city to go around saying there was a time when Christ wasn't. That was, that was the Arian statement. It seems kind of benign. Uh, at face value. There was a time when Christ wasn't. Can you imagine a bunch of little heretic children running around saying that? 
Well, the reality of what John is pressing into is there never has been a time that Christ wasn't. And that turns out to be very important in our understanding of the Gospel. You see, verse 1 can only be resolved by a Trinitarian theology. And friends, we haven't had to contend in the same way that our ancestors in the faith have had to contend for Trinitarian theology. And so what I think we do is we take for granted the reality of the Trinity. Um, we, say, we, we mentally say, well, yeah, I agree with that. Now, none of us completely comprehend it. It is a deep doctrine. It's beyond our finite frame to receive it fully. But I think that we take it far too lightly in our understanding of what the Word of God is teaching. We learned last week that it really can be, Trinitarianism can be asserted in four propositional statements. And that is that God is one, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. If you have that down, there is so much more to say about the Trinity, of course, but you have the crux of, of what we're asserting in Trinitarian, Trinitarianism. God is one, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And in those four simple propositional statements, we have truth that has been defended throughout the centuries by the faithful. It's here written so plainly in one verse by John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, today we move on into verse 3. As John says, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John here makes a statement that leaves little room for ambiguity. I love people like John. He says what he means. He says it succinctly. And there's not a whole lot of room for us to argue against what he's saying. Look at verse 3 again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He makes here the assertion of Christ's creative work in the Logos in a positive and a negative aspect. The positive affirms His creative work. And we might ask the question, well, why do we need both the positive and the negative? Is John merely here being redundant? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Because the negative, well, it presses into several things. I think there could be a whole sermon just on, and maybe it'll turn into that, uh, on the negative connotation of, and there is nothing that... And without Him was not anything made that was made. The first thing that it presses against is uh, the pagan cosmology of this particular day. And, and really in our day too. You remember John's first letter was written to oppose the Gnostics. Those who said that there were these demiurges that, that, that created the world. And there was good creation and there was bad creation and these lesser gods created out of material and matter that was already there, they used what was to create what now is. And there was in all of that teaching kind of a, a functional Gnosticism. Manichaeism has a similar thing. If you know Augustine, he at one time was a Manichaeist and, and had to grow out of that and and was its primary contender. But what we know at the basis of all of this is every worldview has to deal with the categories of good and evil and where did they come from. And so here, 
there is this assertion that nothing was made without Christ. God made everything. Now, immediately somebody's going to stand up and say, well, doesn't that make him the author of evil? And J.C. Ryle does a great job here of pointing out um, the reality that in God's original creation, there was no evil. Uh, we've dealt with Bellarmine and, and, and Kuiper and, and the views in the past couple uh, weeks and dealing with lamentations pressing against a, a theology that would say God somehow incorporated evil into His creation. We understand, first and primarily, not just from biblical scholars, but from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin entered the world by one man. Sin entered the cosmos by Satan, and then the world by Adam. God did not create evil. Evil came into His good creation. And, and some of us then struggle with, well, if, if He's saying that there's nothing made that wasn't made by God, how do we square those things? Augustine does a really good job of... Augustine really can be practical. He can be really weird at points too, but he can be really practical and helpful. And, and when he's dealing with this, he talks about flies. Where's Jace this morning? Chase, throw your hand up. There you are. I thought about you all throughout the week having read this and all the other little guys in the room that would probably be enamored by this because he, he starts with flies, he gets to lizards. It's a natural, I think, progression for the male mind. Um, but what he, what he asked is, is look, if you have flies that are buzzing around you and annoying the snot out of you, who are you going to say created those flies? And of course, Augustine's always willing to snipe at the Manichaeists because he knows that they're theologically errant. And he, he says, well, there's a Manichaeist that's sitting there and these flies are swarming him, annoying him. And so you press it and you ask him, where do those flies come from? And the Manichaeist in his error is going to say, because the flies are annoying him, well, there must have been some evil force that created the flies. And so Augustine presses back in, well, what about the bees? Well, the bees can be annoying and awful too, so the, the bad things must be, well, that must be an evil force too. And he goes on and he says, then you come to lizards and eventually birds and eventually donkeys and you, and you go on and on. And what ends up happening is the individual that says the flies were made by evil ends up being the fly of annoyance himself. Because we take all of what the Bible teaches about how the world and the cosmos was created and we flip it on its head. And then he points out that what we should, in the humility of our heart, come to understand is the fly that is buzzing around us is a result of the fall. And it is a constant reminder that we one day will find ourselves in the grave. And then he goes on to encourage us, don't blame the judge of all the earth for sending the fly. Reckon with your own sin for the flies having to be sent at all. And then he goes on to point out the reality that we see this in Egypt as God humbles an entire nation not by some other physical force, but by sending small little creatures that bring them to their knees that bring them to the point of having to be humbled and letting His people go. And so what is, 
What is here John saying about the creation in the negative is that everything exists by the rule and the reign of God's power. Ryle points out that this guards us from a rendering of verse 1 also. So first, it teaches us, the negative teaches us, that God really did create all things. Even the annoying, difficult providences of God come from the hand of God. But also, Ryle points out that this, this guards us from rendering from verse 1 that Jesus was non-existent prior to the Incarnation. Jesus was not made, He was begotten. And anyone who says that Jesus was made, that there was a time that Christ wasn't, and He merely was created, has no argument in verse 3. They can't contend with the reality that nothing was made without Christ being part of its creation. Jesus made everything that is ex nihilo. And this pushes against all of the different creation narratives that are pagan. Because they tend to start with material that a lesser God then forms. Jesus spoke everything out of nothing by the will of the Father. The words here speak of the reality that Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the, the principle that created the world. He again made everything from nothing. He spoke it all into existence from divine fiat. Now, we come to this other word in verse 3 that I think is fascinating. All things were made through Him. All things were made through Him. Through, through is an interesting word. We use it in different instances. We can say our successes or our failures come through a particular struggle or that we go through things in this life or we sent something through the mail. Well, what's being said here, what's being spoken of, is that the Son is the agent of all creation by the will of the Father. All that was created was by the will of the Father expressed through the Son, the Logos. This is John being a really, 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 really good attorney. Good attorneys will stand and make an argument and they'll press into the people listening to them a logic that they cannot escape. And that's what John is doing here. He's pressing into us that everything that was made was made through the Son by the will of the Father. There's no argument against that. You can take that or leave that. That's all you can do. So John is leaning into us here, telling us that everything that was made was made by the will of the Father through the Son. He's giving us propositions that we cannot get around. And, and what we find here in John chapter 1 is the Old Testament clarified. Now I want to be careful here because I think a few wrong words can get this out of sorts. But Israel in the Old Testament had in Genesis chapter 1 something that was inspired and I believe that it was adequate, not inadequate, but it was not complete. When we find in Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, it is an adequate understanding for those who would receive it to understand that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. But it's not a complete rendering of what God is doing in the cosmos. And some people 
E- even Christian people, I find. There's one in particular. He builds a really nice boat. Not the best theologian, in my opinion. Want to point back to Genesis chapter 1 as the crux of all of Scripture. Now, I think God's creative work is a crucial issue, and you'll understand that by the time we're done today. But Genesis chapter 1 creates a, gives us a prototype of what creation is about. It doesn't give us the fullness. We find the fullness here in John chapter 1. And I think John chapter 1 clarifies so much about what is happening in Genesis chapter 1. What I hope to show you is how interconnected verses 1 through 3 are with Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is missing the bulk of the argument that comes to us in John chapter 1 verse 3. It's only in this one verse that we really get a full picture of what is happening when Jesus creates everything out of nothing in Genesis chapter 1. John 1 verse 3 is the lens through which faithful Christians must see uh, Genesis chapter 1. You see, in the Old Testament, we have this understanding. In the Old Testament Jewish economy, Israel had an understanding that the heavens declare the glory of God. That the, the general revelation of creation declares to you and I, even outside of the faith, that that there is a Creator. Friends, there really aren't atheists in this world. There are people who subvert the truth in unrighteousness, but there is not an individual who can really come to the cosmos and everything that is and say, this just happened. I was listening the other day to somebody talking about termites. We had termites here one time, had to have them fumigated. Termites eat wood. A really simple point. Uh, but termites can't digest the wood, the cellulose that goes into their stomach, so they have to have a bacteria in their stomach to break down what they eat. So that produces an evolutionary problem. What came first, the termite or the thing that kept it alive to eat? I think one of the other examples was a woodpecker whose tongue wraps all the way around the back of its head into its eyeball. And I thought for a second, I am so thankful I'm not an evolutionist. Because every time I eat a a hamburger, I don't want the backside of my eyeball being licked at. That would be annoying. And what we find in the woodpecker is that there's not... Woodpeckers are a very interesting animal. Is that there's there's not a derivative animal that we see that kind of adaptation built into. So, so evolution starts to, to fall apart in that vein. The heavens do declare the glory of God. The distinctive truth in Christianity is not that the one true living God created everything that is. That's a distinction to the Old Testament, yes, and it belongs to us, but it is not what makes us distinctly Christian. Jewish people believe that. Here is the grand assertion that John gives to you and I that makes the Christian faith different from the Jewish faith. And that is simply this. And I hope you never get over it. It is that the cosmos was created as the grand theater of redemption through the Son for the glory of the Father. That is, everything was made, not in Genesis 1 as a plan A, 
hoping that man would stay in righteousness, everything that was made was made for the glory of Christ to be revealed through the work of redemption. The cosmos is the grand theater of our very redemption. We understand, uh, again, from Genesis that God created, but we understand from John that God created so that He might redeem. One of my favorite theologians, I don't agree with him on everything, but John Calvin, and you probably heard this before, would assert that all of our wisdom can be boiled down into two categories, wisdom of God, or knowledge of God, and knowledge of self. And what we need to see, he goes on to say, is an understanding of God, we will see Him in two different veins. And Calvin somewhat divides Genesis as one point, and I would point him back to John chapter 3 here, but he says God is not only Creator, but He's also known throughout all of the Bible as Redeemer. So what we can know rightly is boiled down into knowledge of self, knowledge of God, and our God is a God who both creates and He redeems what is fallen in His creation. And that's exactly what John is telling us here. Now, now this, again, pushes back on a primal heresy. And primal heresies, that is heresies that come early on, always turn into perennial heresies. That means they creep up time and time and time again. There's nothing the church faces today that she hasn't already faced. And the primal heresy is this. It is that the Old Testament was plan A and the New Testament is plan B. That God somehow created in Genesis hoping that he would, have a, he would have fellowship with man and there would be no fall, but there was an oops. And God allowed that oops to happen. And now, we have to go on to the New Testament, which is plan B. Beloved, can we affirm this morning that all of the Word of God is His unfolding plan of redemption? Everything from Genesis to Revelation is God demonstrating to you and I that we are fallen and that He is our Redeemer and the only Redeemer. John would say the propitiator, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins, but not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. He is the only Redeemer that can atone for sin. You see, the Old Testament is not a series of God's plan failing, and then the New Testament shows up as God's success. All of the Bible shows the character of God in His faithful kindness to redeem sinful man. Now, we do understand there are different periods and different systems. I I had one brother at a particular time, uh, he, he did not like me using the word atonement in a New Testament gathering. I didn't like him telling me not to use the word atonement in a New Testament gathering. And, and here was his argument. He, he said, well, Jay, new, uh, and, and watch out for this. People do it all the time in different ways. Well, well, you're talking Old Testament. We're New Testament people. No, I'm Bible people. And Jesus owns all of it. He, he was the Word before the beginning. So all of the Word that comes after that belongs to Him and to His people. Uh, this particular brother had an issue, though, using the word atonement because what he, he, he said, well, I had a Bible teacher, and watch out because those will get you into trouble. 
And he wrote the, wrote the word sin on a whiteboard. And I'm not making fun of this, brother. If he hears this, I'm not picking. But sin on a whiteboard. And, and he, this Bible teacher took a piece of paper and wrote atonement on the piece of paper and then stuck it over the word sin. And that is the picture of the Old Testament atonement, that it's a covering for sin. But here, and he picks up an eraser, the eraser is the propitiation, and it wipes the sin away. I just remembered thinking, that's a really good simplified, overly simple application of atonement and propitiation. And, uh, you know, there's maybe some merit here. But ultimately, all of the atonements that are going on in the Old Testament system, and I would concede that Old Testament sacrifices were merely holding back the wrath of God. Uh, Pulling the wrath of God back year after year after year until the definite article atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ took place to eradicate sin, to bear the wrath of the Father for all of time. It's once and done in Jesus. But I would contend with you, all of these lesser atonements point forward to the yes and amen of Christ's atonement. Which I would argue with you is part of the logic of what Hebrews teaches us. Um, All of this to, to say there is one grand narrative of redemption and it works together. All of it ultimately points to Christ. Our, our beloved, th- this is so important to understand. Our God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And He's sovereign. Our God does not need a plan B. And anytime we come to a theology that maybe we've learned and it tells us, well, this was God's subsequent plan, what's defective is that theology. Because God has no plan B. There is the plan of redemption. So what we see here is the fullness of why the cosmos was created. The cosmos was created as the theater of redemption through the Son. And some of you might say, well, I don't see that anywhere. And you're making a really grand assertion from a very small verse. Do we see this anywhere else? Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Starting in verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in quotes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's making Paul the very... We're not in... We're not in John anymore. Paul's speaking here. Paul's writing here. And he's writing the very... It's interesting to see how the apostles had one message. It seems to me that that message came from one author. And it wasn't them. It was the Spirit of the living God. You see, we heard these very same things in verse... Three, there is a consistent fundamental argument throughout all of the New Testament. The work of creation, the New Testament asserts, is a Trinitarian work. The word, excuse me, the world rather, is made through the Son. 
The Father assigns different components of creation, and the assignment of creation itself is given to be accomplished through, is what John is telling us, the Son, for the redemption of man. Now, if we amplify just quickly the argument that, John, that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's dealing with the different uh, meats, the sacrifice to, to idols. And here, there's that context of idolatry. And what, what Paul is saying is there are many gods, there are many false idols, there are many false lords. But then he goes on, and this is what he's saying. But there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, again, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. God is the Creator. And some of you are saying, I think I remember Paul saying that somewhere else too, and you would be right. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Now, if you parse out all of that in Romans chapter 11, you're going to find that the the hymn there in Romans chapter 11 is speaking of the Father, and some would then come back and say, "Well, Jay, which is it? Is everything created through by is is everything created by the Father? Is it created by the Son?" And the answer is yes, because it's never wrong in a Trinitarian theology to say God created. We have to be very careful about our expression of those things and and allowing our minds. Listen, when you come to the Bible and and you find different texts that seem to be contradictory and you go, I can't reconcile that in my brain, I promise you, my dear friend, it is your brain that is faulty, not the text. So God here created. Now, we could go on, turning Colossians chapter 1, verse... 9. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. And so from the day that we heard, we're going to read a large chunk of this. And so that from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who, was qualifi- who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now listen, this passage kept me awake several nights this week. And I hope it does for you too. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Do you, do you hear John's logic in verse 17? And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. John whispers in the background, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made, and was made. Now here, uh, we, we have... Paul, again, asserting the the, the reality of a full-orbed, I think, Christology. Jesus was the firstborn. And and, and when we hear that word firstborn, we have to be careful not to make the error of interpreting that as Jesus being made. No, He wasn't made. He was begotten. And He goes on to tell us that He is the the image of God. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ. And and in verse 16, He gives us again this creation uh, imperative. For by Him all things were created. And then he goes on to show the comprehensiveness of that creative power so that we don't think there's anything that escapes it. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We tend to think, don't we, of creation in the visible sense? I mean, it would be really hard for Ken Ham to build a museum of all the invisible things that Christ has done in creation. You see, the creation museum only gives you half the reality. And in my contention, it gives you the lesser half. The visible. Now the visible, we shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say the lesser half. But, but the animals and the water and the earth, those things, because we can see them, we're tactile people, we're enamored by them. But friends, our lives depend on so much more than what is visible. We depend upon a moral law that is written into our conscience. Friends, this morning, most pastors are going to preach about love in some form or fashion because it's Mother's Day. And the evolutionists would come into our midst today and they, they would say that immaterial thing of love, that's nothing more than a vestigial adaptation whereby mothers were given an instinct to protect their young so their young could grow to the point of maturity and they could themselves reproduce. Talk about the most. Hallmark would be bankrupt if they had to write cards based off of an evolutionist perspective of love. Christ, we know, Created love exists because of the Logos. Love exists because of Christ. And we know that His love is the cornerstone of our redemption. Is anybody's brain starting to be a little bit numb? Good, then we're, we're doing this well. Evolutionists miss the whole point. We celebrate the love of our mothers and, and the immaterial relationship that we have with them today because God has made us in a relational context to our parents. That's not it. He goes on even to point to the reality of the political sphere as he says whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. 
And then in verse 17, he makes this astounding claim. And this is what kept me awake all throughout the week. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Everything that holds together at this moment in the universe holds together because of Christ. Now, I'm not a physicist, so some of this, if you're a physicist in the room, my description may drive you nuts. But we've had a lot of technological advancements. We've had a lot of scientific breakthroughs. Uh, a century ago, we wouldn't have even understood that the atom existed in, in our reasoning that we have today. But now we have the periodic table of elements. We can split an atom. And if you were asked me how do they do that, I don't know. But here's the interesting thing. We're still not quite sure in our modern day and in all of our confidence and faith that is placed in scientific reasoning, we're not quite sure what holds an atom together. Now, I found an article um, that was dated 2014, so it's a little dated, and talks about a new exotic particle has been hiding out amidst the gobs of data collected by the world's largest, largest atom smasher. I love scientific articles that use the word smasher. I have a feeling that this particular author is from Missouri. We like words like that. Uh, physicists have discovered this new particle called DS3 is a mesion, a type of unstable particle made of one quirk and one antiquirk. Quirks are subatomic particles and are the most basic building blocks of matter that make up protons and neutrons. They are held together by a strong interaction. There's a vague statement, or a strong force, which is one of the four fundamental forces in nature, the others being electromagnetism, weak interaction, and gravity. But we're not sure even there, they say. Well, I, well, I would say that we will probably come to a point where we will be given some reason or some, some, some mechanism by which there may be an assertion as we move on in scientific discovery that we point and we say, well, that's what holds an atom together. But that really doesn't give the reason behind the mechanism. And the reason behind the mechanism why everything is held together in this planet at this very moment is found in verse 17. Christ is holding it all together. You can't go down to the latest scoop now and eat an ice cream. I dare you. Eat an ice cream cone without looking at it and going, Jesus is holding this together. The reason this tastes so fantastic is Christ is holding it together. As I lay down last night, I thought He's holding this room together. Every particle that is here is held together by the work, the sustaining work of Christ. You see, First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 8 gives us a little more insight into John chapter 3. But Colossians gives us more time. The argument that is given here through Paul is that the work of Christ by the Father not only is a creative work at the beginning of time, but it is a sustaining work that is acting upon us at this very moment. The reason that we live and breathe and have our being right now is because Jesus is sustaining us. He is Creator and He is Sustainer. Our dear friend R.C. Sproul would say, see, not one maverick molecule. 
So we have to acknowledge here in verse 3 is the implicit reality of his creative work and his sustaining work. He does all of this for his own glory and for the accomplishment of redemption. Now, this is what will just make... We need to notice something in verses 17 and 18. Let's read them. Look with me. 17 and 18, Colossians chapter 1. And He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. Now, ascending titles, so we're clear how they work, and I'll bring it into modern day, this would have been used... Uh, when this letter was authored in different ways, but, but rulers or leaders in this time would, would, would list out all of the different titles that they had held throughout their life and they would ascend in order. So you could find Harry S. Truman in our mo- more modern context. I tried to think of a politician that I would want to use on a Sunday morning. It was pretty remote. Um, he was a judge in Jackson County, Missouri. He was a senator Uh, in the United States Senate. He went on to be the Vice President of the United States and eventually the President. The ascending titles of Harry S. Truman. Well, here, beloved, in verses 16 and 17, if you want to write a note in your Bible, bracket those two verses. These are the ascending titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Jesus created all things for the glory of the Father as the theater, again, of our redemption, and He holds it all together even yet for that same purpose. I think this is the potential error that we would, we would make with this text. We could come and look as though this little story of the Gospel were taking place in, in, the, in the world and, and this world is the really big component of what God has done. That, that everything that happens on this little planet to bring people into faith, that this is primary. But what this text tells us is the exact opposite. Everything on earth is a means to an end. Everything that has happened from Adam throughout all of the historical centuries, everything that exists to this day exists for one purpose, and it is otherworldly. You see, the truth is, everything is held together in this smaller story of our creative understanding serving the grander narrative of redemption. The creative work of the universe serves the, the, the grander narrative of redemption. So this is what we would do wrongly if we read it backwards and we're enamored by just what happens on the earth. But in fact, what happens is what, what Paul does is he starts in verse 17 and he builds to everything in verse 18. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul tells us that is so astounding in this text is that Jesus being the head of the church is more glorious than it is for Him to be the Creator and Sustainer. 
His creation in Genesis chapter 1, His sustaining in our lives right now, is heading forward to a completed work of redemption in glory. What we find is this, that the church will endure when the creation disappears. We spend the, the, the insanity of our lives as we look at our neighbors who are lost in their sin and they are striving to build kingdoms in the here and now. They're striving to, to build political influence. They're striving to, to make a name for themselves. They're striving for all of the pleasures and, and, and Koalath, uh, uh, Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, all of that's going to vanish away. But Jesus will always be preeminent. When the earth passes away, He'll still be the head of the church. Isn't that a joy to know? You see, the, the creation exists as a theater, as a mere stage, as a prop, as furniture for the redemption that is being brought about through the Son. Oh, friends, help us not to believe it is only our redemption that comes through the Son. It's also the very world in which He accomplishes His redemption. Jesus had to nurse from a sapling the tree that He would die on. He had to bring up from birth the soldiers that would nail Him to that cross. Jesus is preeminent in everything. Everything. And John says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews helps us, I think, to interpret the Old Testament rightly. In, in verse 1 of, of, of chapter 1 of Hebrews, we have this long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, what He's saying there in verse 1 is the Old Testament is God's Word. It's oracular. It came through the prophets. It can be trusted by the people of God. It has value and meaning and reveals... The salvific work that God is doing. But in verse 2, it, it intensifies. He spoke to our fathers by prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We knew the redemptive character of God in the Old Testament, but now we understand what John is saying in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, 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 the God of the heavens has spoken to us through the Son. The, the writer of Hebrews here grounds the work of redemption in the work of creation. Christ created it, and Christ is going to redeem it. There is no plan B. There is no oops. There is no accident. From Genesis to John chapter 1, verse 3, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, to Colossians chapter 1, to Hebrews, and on through Revelation, 
All of the Word of God is speaking clearly. God created it and God is going to redeem His people from their sins. That's what this verse is teaching us. And some of you might say, well, but how fundamental is this? And this is the question of our day. How fundamental is the the creation narrative to the Gospel? And, And there are some who would say in their academic philosophy of theology that's man-centered, well, we can buy into a non-creative gospel. We, we can acknowledge that God didn't necessarily create God's Redeemer. That's absolute nonsense in the economy. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11? The great chapter of faith? Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 11. This is how fundamental... Jesus being the the creator of all things that would be the theater for His redemptive work. Creation, redemption, you can't separate them in the Word of God. Look at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. What, what, what the author of Hebrews here, we've got John, we've got Paul, now we have the author of Hebrews. What, what he is saying is you can't separate creation from redemption any more than you can separate faith from salvation. They go hand in hand. It's the same story, friends. From Genesis 1 to John 3 to 1 Corinthians to Colossians on through Revelation, it's the same story and it's the same Christ. All the way through the same Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The faith here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the faith that saves is a faith that Jesus is both Redeemer and Creator of. And I would make this argument, you can see the ontological reality that, and, and, and salvation reality that in our lives, faith doesn't come into existence without... Well, let's just ask this question. When I read this verse, does it include the faith that you have in Christ? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The error of Armenianism is they stand against that verse and say, I made my own faith. No, you didn't. He is both Creator and He is Redeemer. And I would argue that Paul comes back to that point when he says the same God that allowed light to shine forth is the one who has shown into our hearts the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not glorious? He holds everything, he creates all things, he holds it all together, and he redeems the very thing that he intends his people for his glory. Do you see what John is doing? John is coming into our day with his argument, and God inspired these words knowing we would need them. And he's saying, 
you cannot take me off of the throne. He's saying of Christ, you, of Christ, you can't take him off the throne as creator without losing him as redeemer. You cannot divide those realities because what he is speaking is Jesus is the Son of God who created the cosmos and who sustains it today for the glory of the Father and for our redemption. And he will sustain it. The gates of hell won't prevail against him. And he will bring about the completion of redemption. You can take this Jesus or you can leave him. You see, what we find is the reality that, Jesus, that John wrote this, this letter, this, this gospel for. We remember in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things were written. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 were written so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. Friend, if you're here today and you're trying to build a life for yourself outside of the work of Christ, you're trying to build even a good work for Jesus outside of a saving relationship with Jesus, can I tell you this today on the authority of the Word of God? What you are trying to hold together in your life, what you are trying to sustain for your own glory, that, that, that relationship, the job, whatever the thing is that you hold to more than Christ, Jesus has not promised to sustain that thing throughout all of eternity. What He has promised to sustain is a people that worship Him as both their Creator and their Redeemer. As the one who can take a broken life and give them life everlasting. Beloved, stop holding on to a world that is merely a prop. This earth will pass away. And what we will find is the one who was in the beginning, who sustains all things today, on that final day, will be our Christ who is preeminent. Mark it down. It's going to happen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for Your Word, so thankful for the reminder that all things were made through Christ, that without Him was not anything made that was made. Father, might we humbly bow at Your feet knowing that You are the Creator of all material and immaterial things, that You are the sustainer of those very things, that You're the Creator of faith. And Father, if there's one here today that is holding on to this life and to this world, might today they see in a new way that this earth is passing away. Might they run from this, or this, the things of this life, all of the principalities and powers, might they run and find life in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, for those of us who are who are here today believing, might we never look at the world the same way again? Might we be reminded that You've created all things, that we might know Your goodness, that we might know Your glory, but might we look beyond created things and rest in You and in You alone. 
And might we worship you in spirit and in truth because of this truth. In Christ's name, amen. If you're able, please rise and let's sing before the throne of God above.